All right. Um, so I am really excited and also really honored that um, Dr. Elizabeth Bennett uh, agreed to uh, speak to us today. Um, Liz and I have known each other for quite a while now, maybe at least five years or so. Um, we met at first a number of years ago in, in Bellagio um, at this really awful venue for, for meetings um, on the shores of Lake Como in Italy, um, which was, I believe, one of the, the first meetings to start discussing this question of the intersection between synthetic biology um, and conservation. Um, and over the years, Liz and I have, have developed a really great friendship that, that, that I'm honored to sort of be able to call her a friend. Um, she's the Vice President um, of Species Conservation at the Wildlife Conservation Society. Um, she's also a primate expert. Um, and if you ever get a chance to sit with her at dinner, um, I highly recommend it because there will just be random stories that will just sort of blow your mind um, of her travels throughout the world, sort of interacting with primates and other different um, species. Um, so I'm going to stop talking um, and let Liz um, wow us with her, her expertise. Uh, okay, so Todd asked if I would talk about biodiversity conservation in synthetic biology. And as he said, he and I have been working together on this um, in different ways for, for quite a few years now. And so uh, he asked if I could speak a little bit about it from the wildlife conservation point of view with some examples from, uh, that I'm familiar with from the field. So what I'm going to do today is quickly summarize the state of wildlife conservation today, what the conservation community is doing about it, and more traditional approaches being used. And I'll tend to use WCS um, case studies as an example, just because I'm very familiar with them. Then say a little bit about threats to wildlife that remain a little intractable, and explore if synthetic biology might or might not be able to help. And then a little bit about the uses of synthetic biology for non-conservation applications, but which have implications potentially on, uh, on biodiversity, on wildlife. So as far as we know, there are about 8.7 million species on Earth, um, of which about 6.5 million are on land, and the rest are in the oceans. But our one species is having a vast impact on a lot of the, or pretty much all of the others. This is a, um, a project that was done by uh, one of my colleagues here at WCS, Eric Sanderson, a few years ago, and then he just recently updated it, looking at the human footprint on the world. And this basically is a composite of maps of lights at night, uh, roads, uh, road density, human population density, urban areas, and put those layers on together. And as you can see, that apart from places that are very dry or very cold, the impact of humans is absolutely vast um, across the planet. About 50% of the Earth's surface has been transformed one way or another into agriculture, rangelands, and urban areas. These amounts vary slightly by continent, but they're pretty high pretty much everywhere. And we're still losing natural forests at about 140,000 square kilometers a year. In addition to that mega impact through habitat loss on species, we also directly exploit wild species. Now we've done this since the dawn of our species. We've hunted, we've fished, we've used wild species for our clothes, for our medicines, for our housing. But, whoops, sorry, wrong way. Um, uh, but an awful lot clearly has changed since then. 
partly there's just a huge amount more of us than there used to be. Um, and the other thing is that's really made a dramatic recent change is globalization. So you can have an animal that's in a forest in Central Africa today, and it can be in a market in China tomorrow. Um, and the extent of that, and the fact that there's almost nowhere on earth that's not accessible in some way by roads has, has really changed the whole picture. So what you've got is what used to be a fairly local sustainable use of wild species is now a large global commercial trade in a very wide range of species from songbirds uh, at the top here to pangolins. This is a freezer in Indonesia confiscated of, um, uh, full, of full of pangolins, um, hundreds of pangolins uh, which were being frozen and then exported to Vietnam or ivory and you can name a whole lot of others. And so these days, the unsustainable and often illegal wildlife trade threatens very large numbers of species. The characteristics of this illegal trade are that it's long distance, it's usually international, it's very organized, it's organized crime with kingpins and it's capitalized, a lot of investment in it. It's often extremely large scale. These on the top left are bear paws. Um, just huge numbers of bear paws being uh, exported from India into China. The scale of some of the, the reptile trade for food and pets. Um, it's, so it's a huge scale and it's often linked to other forms of organized crime such as human trafficking, drugs, guns. So between habitat loss and direct explo exploitations uh, like this, increasing numbers of species are threatened with extinction. So looking at terrestrial vertebrates, because they're the ones for which we generally have the best data, about 21% of all mammals are threatened with extinction, according to IUCN and their red list of threatened species. About 20% of all reptiles, about 13% of all birds, and about 32% of all amphibians. But within that, certain taxa are much, much more threatened. So tortoises and turtles and primates about 60% of all species are threatened with extinction. Let's just quickly think about, does that matter? Does it matter if species go extinct? When a lot of us are sitting in urban areas where species seem somewhat um, not linked to our day to day. Partly these species clearly have an intrinsic value and the belief that species should not be allowed to go extinct is actually the basis of a huge amount of international laws and regulations. The Endangered Species Act, the International Convention on uh, Trade in Endangered Species, the IUCN Red List, and pretty much every country in the world has got legislation and regulations uh, and systems to ensure that species don't go, uh, don't go extinct. You also have very strong cultural values for a lot of, of, of wildlife species conservation, very integrally linked into uh, cultures around the world. Just think of the number of adverts that you see with uh, big cats in it or other species in it. I'm not gonna read all the detail of this, but this is basically a series of studies showing that wildlife is very important to local livelihoods. So these three are studies in Borneo in Southeast Asia, in West Africa, and in Latin America, showing that basically rural people in rainforests are getting a lot of their protein uh, from um, sustainable hunting. And there's about 3 billion people in the world that one way or another are dependent on wild fish for their protein. And those that depend on wild species are often the world's poorest and most marginalized people away from these urban areas. 
species are important for jobs and economies. For example, in uh, these parts of East Africa, uh, you get tourism, most of which is wildlife based, is a very significant part of their GDP and employs several hundred thousand people. And species, perhaps most importantly of all, are really critical to the functioning of ecosystems on which all life on Earth depends. Uh, between um, the, uh, the, some of the ones that are really being lost the fastest are the big spectacular ones, the big, the big top predators, um, seed dispersers, seed pollinators, um, uh, ecosystem engineers such as, such as elephants. And fully functioning intact systems are really uh, critical for providing this full range of ecosystem services, clean air, clean water, uh, uh, buffering against climate change, as well as all the other benefits. And the link of species and intact systems to climate change is becoming clearer with research all the time. So tropical forests store about 55% of global carbon and in Amazonia, where this particular species, uh, study was done, it showed that primates and tapirs dispersed the seeds of many large seeded trees. These species have higher wood density uh, than small seeded trees, so more stored carbon. Um, than so um, if you lose those animals to overhunting, you can lose up to nearly 40% of above ground biomass and that therefore greatly reduces carbon storage and capture ability of those forests. And there's been very much more recent studies come out showing very similar thing for African forests if you lose the forest elephants and Southeast Asian forests again with losing primates and tapirs. So what can be done? I say I'll give just a bit of an example of what WCS is doing here. We were founded uh, exactly 125 years ago as the New York Zoological Society, and it had three um, core mission elements then. And the third one was right from the start was encouragement of uh, basically what we would these days call conservation. Um, because even at that stage, it was apparent that a lot of wildlife was becoming threatened, and that was a lot, long time ago. There are so many species that are threatened, there's way too many to protect them all individually and have programs for them all individually. So what governments around the world do, and we tend to work to support them to do, is to create protected areas, which then can serve all the species within them, um, and uh, also the entire functioning ecosystem. So using, um, we, we tend to do this using a fairly scientific approach, study the species first and, and study their habitat, um, how large an area is needed, which areas are needed in what locations, and um, then work, as I say, with governments to make sure they are protected. So we started with ones largely in this country and then going global. And since 1907, when the first one was uh, established, um, WCS has been supporting governments, um, protecting more than 288 protected areas in the last 115 odd years. Now, we don't work in all of those same ones now, but we do work in countries, in 60 countries around the world in, in a large range of different areas, and they collectively protect large numbers of species. So, 44% of all mammal species and 55% of all bird species globally occur in WCS landscapes. 
Now, that's not enough to save species that are really targeted for the illegal wildlife trade, because these can be extremely valuable and hunters will go to great lengths to get into protected areas to poach them, whether we're talking elephants and rhinos, tigers, pangolins, and animals for the pet trade. So we also work with governments in intelligence-led anti-crime programs. One of the best ways of uh, detecting things like smuggled ivory and, and smuggled rhino horns is actually sniffer dogs, um, which shown on the picture on the left here. This is a sniffer dog in the port in Gabon, in Libreville, trying to sniff out ivory in uh, ship containers. Um, and also have um, intelligence-led um, networks or informants um, to help us detect the uh, wildlife kingpins, such as um, in this uh, operation going on here in, in Indonesia in the photo on the right. So our overall approach is long-term commitment on the ground at key sites. And when I say long-term, I'm talking 20, 30, 40 years. Um, so quick in and out doesn't work, but these long-term commitments and then working beyond the sites as well to reduce uh, the pressures outside the sites. And again, I said we're fairly science-based, including testing what works, uh, monitoring it and adaptive managing as need be, and also fairly pragmatic. Um, so what works, this picture is of a reserve in Thailand with rangers on patrol. What would work in a, rain, uh, a tiger reserve in Thailand would be a very different approach to what would work in an indigenous reserve in Bolivia, for example. So in the interest of time, I'll give you just one example, that same area in Thailand, um, and overall uh, what's being done to conserve the tiger. This tiger, by the way, had just, uh, just killed that gao, which is about seven foot high at the shoulder. So that was quite an achievement. Um, why are tigers in trouble? Historically, and somewhat continuing today, habitat loss. If you think back to that human footprint map, tigers occur in tropical Asia, and most of tropical Asia on that human footprint map was red, showing very high levels of disturbance. And so historically, this area here in Vietnam would have been great tiger habitat, good lowland forest there, but now it's very intensive agriculture. Historically, again, there would have been hunting of tigers for predator control and also for sport. And more recently, there's been a significant uptick in hunting of prey for bushmeat, bushmeat trade. Uh, and again, if tigers don't have any natural prey to eat, then tigers themselves will, will die out. And the most recent real serious threat is direct hunting of tigers for traditional medicines for their bones, largely going to, uh, to East Asia. So more than 100 years ago, there were probably 100,000 tigers across their range, and we're now down to about 3,500. So they're in a lot of trouble. So what's the strategy being deployed to try and conserve them? It's fairly traditional, classic strategy, consolidate uh, protected area systems and corridors between them. So make sure that their core strongholds are in protected areas and those protected areas are linked up so that the population can move between them, such as in this um, area in the Western Ghats in Western India. Those areas then need good management. There's no point in just gazetting them as a protected area. They need uh, good management, particularly strict enforcement to keep out 
poachers and encroachers, working with local communities um, in science-based patrolling. So this is a program that's been developed over the last few years called SMART, which is the Spatial Management and Reporting Tool. And if you just Google smartpartnership.com, you'll come across it. It's now being used in something like 300 protected areas worldwide. And it's very effective. It's a GPS-based system. So you have your team of rangers who go out with a GPS unit. It's very user-friendly because these guys often don't have a very high level of education. And every time they go on their patrol, if they see signs of an animal or signs of um, uh, trouble like shotgun cartridges or something like that, they note it down. It's geo-referenced. The maps of the patrols are all put together. And then that feedback into say, well, this is where the core areas for the animals are. These are the core trouble spots. And so um, this is how we arrange the next round of patrols. And it's, it's being an incredibly effective tool. It also helps build team spirit. It helps reduce um, negligence and corruption because if they're being tracked and going around in teams, the rangers can't be spending their time sitting in the local, the local bar or coffee shop. Um, and so where it's deployed it well, it's very effective in conjunction as well as anti-trafficking uh, operations outside the protected areas such as this one in Indonesia. Where we do that with enough resources, it works. So at this reserve, Huaykakeng in Western Thailand, near the Myanmar border, uh, between in this 10-year period, patrol effort increased by about 600%. This, these are smart-based patrols. The Thai government investment increased by 75%, while tiger numbers have increased by 50%, which is fantastic. And tigers are now recolonizing surrounding areas from which they've been knocked back. So this is a very traditional approach. Um, science-based and improving it all the time, but it's a very traditional approach. And uh, for quite a lot of species in quite a lot of areas, it's very effective. But are there conservation problems that conventional approaches really can't solve very well, and that synthetic biology solutions are at least being explored? Recognizing none of them are yet being deployed, but they are being explored. These are all summarized um, and captured well in these two reports uh, by IUCN. They were written by the IUCN Task Force on Synthetic Biology and came out last year. Todd and also Jason Delborn uh, are co-authors on a lot of this and have been a lot of the intellectual driving force behind these. And it's been a real pleasure and honor to work with both of them on it. The way these are done is a lot of this is focused around case studies because the conservation community represented by IUCN is fairly unaware of this and has a hard time getting their heads around what it means. So it's based around a series of case studies and for each case study it says what the traditional approach is, what synthetic biology may be able to add to that and what the potential advantages are and what the potential disadvantages of that are. And I know you've been given the link to this before, before the uh, talk today. There's a, a whole section of the report on applications of synthetic biology designed to be for conservation benefit directly. Um, and those fall into two broad categories, mit mitigating threats and adaptation of species. And I'll pick out a couple of the case examples for you. And the whole aim of these is not to replace traditional approaches at all, but to complement them and fill in potential gaps that existing conservation tools are having a hard job getting, uh, getting to. 
So in terms of mitigating threats, um, this was one I learned about during the preparation of the report, which was completely mind-blowing to me. Horseshoe crabs around the world, they're a very ancient um, genetic lineage, and they have this bizarre blue blood, which is absolutely unique. Um, it's extremely sensitive to toxins, bacteria, and it's used to test for contamination during every single thing that's ever injected into a human. So every shot you've ever had, every time you've had blood taken, um, that will have um, been tested with the reagent from the horseshoe crab blood. This is an extraordinary picture in the middle here of a whole row of horseshoe crabs um, being folded up and, and bled. Now, horseshoe crabs uh, are taken from the wild for this. They're released afterwards, but there's really pretty poor data on how many of them survive and what the mortality rate is. And we do know that horseshoe crabs are declining globally. That's clearly not good for the medical industry. And it's not good for some of the other things that interact with horseshoe crabs. So for example, the big spawning of horseshoe crabs are a critical food source for migrating red knot, these wonderful shorebirds in Delaware Bay, sort of more or less halfway between you and me at the moment. Is there a potential synthetic biology solution? In this particular case, yes, there is. Um, there's a company in Singapore that's done genetic engineering of DNA to replicate the active factor in that blue blood. It's been done and the product is already starting to be on the market. The potential advantages of this, the replacement product is a perfect substitute for that reagent. So it, uh, it eliminates the need to bleed the horseshoe crabs that conserves the crabs, it puts the medical industry on a much more solid footing, good for us, and conserves migratory birds. The potential disadvantages, well, this one, there probably aren't any, unless you can think of some, and the market is predicted to switch once reliable supply systems are in place. But synthetic biology is not a silver bullet to address all wildlife trade. Uh, somebody is proposing uh, producing synthetic rhino horn, and that would be potentially really dangerous for rhinos because it's not a perfect substitute. Many users of traditional medicine um, with rhino horn believe that wild sourced horns are more efficacious than farmed or artificial ones. So that the wild trade would still continue, there wouldn't be a perfect substitute for it. All rhino horn trade is currently illegal. And so putting synthetic rhino horn on the market would open a market which currently does not exist uh, legally, uh, although clearly it is an illegal market, but that would allow laundering of wild sourced horns into a newly opened legal market. And the synthetic product would be ge genetically identical to the horn from a rhino. So it would be really difficult or impossible for enforcement staff to say what was real and what wasn't. So that one is potentially a real hazard. Looking at other uh, case examples, potential synthetic biology used for mitigation of threats. Invasive alien species are a major threat to uh, species. We know the cause of extinction pretty well for about 170 animal species over time that have gone extinct. And 54% were at least partly due to invasive species. And it's the single greatest threat to species on islands. I'm going to give you a very concrete example here. These are the Jason Islands in the South Atlantic. They're completely wonderful. They're the extreme western end of the Falkland or Mal Malvinas Islands. They're uninhabited and they are, uh, give the breeding ground for about half a million um, 
black-browed albatrosses shown here, as well as three species of penguins. And like a lot of island-dwelling species where there's no natural ground predators, um, they're, they're ground-nesting birds, which means they are very vulnerable if invasive species get onto the island. In this particular case, mice have got onto the island. And traditional approaches of trapping and poisoning the mice would be problematic because the islands are also home to a near-threatened raptor, the striated caracara, this handsome fellow here. And so if there were poisoned mice lying around, it could potentially be bad for the bird. Is there a potential synthetic biology solution? Potentially, yes. Using gene drive to bias the sex ratio of the mice to make all the mice on the island one gender within just a few generations. The potential advantage of that is there's no closely re related mammal species at all on the islands or anywhere near them, so the risks of gene transfer to other species would be fairly, fairly light. It could wipe out the invasive rodents and thereby removing the threat to the seabirds. The potential disadvantage of anything like this is the genetically modified rodent getting off the islands again, uh, back to where native populations of those mice are, in which case it would wipe them out too. Now these islands are really pretty isolated, it's about four hours boat drive from the nearest other island, but the rodents got onto the island so that potentially is, uh, is a, you'd need very careful, careful biocontrol to make sure that they didn't get off the island before they were wiped out. Um, adaptation is the other potential use for direct conservation benefit. Uh, the American chestnut was once extremely common and widespread across large swaths of North America, providing food and shelter for many species, including humans. They've been almost entirely wiped out by blight fungus, and they now only exist as small shrubs that as soon as they get to a certain size, they die out. Attempts to crossbreed them with blight-resistant Chinese chestnuts are having a bit iffy, inconsistent results. Is there a potential synthetic biology solution? Yes, there is. Inserting a single gene from wheat into the American chestnut, it produces an enzyme that breaks down the toxin from the fungus and therefore makes it ineffective. And the potential advantage, it would allow American chestnuts to grow to maturity and to repopulate North America with all of their ecological benefits. And there's a lot of people that are pretty enthusiastic about this. There are some potential concerns. What are the implications for the ecological communities that actually have evolved um, in different directions since the American chestnut disappeared? And are there health concerns for people and animals eating the chestnuts? And those are things that are currently clearly being debated. The main focus of synthetic biology applications and developments to date have been in the fields of agriculture and medicine, <clears throat> not conservation per se. Although some of these have significant ramifications for biodiversity, either positive, negative, or a mixture of the two. I'm going to give you an example, which I'm very familiar with from Southeast Asia. Loss of natural habitat to agriculture is the single th greatest threat to biodiversity globally and very dramatically has been the spread of oil palm um, to get palm oil. It's grown in lowlands of the humid tropics, which are, and that's the only place it occurs. It needs to be in places with high rainfall, which are warm and have high rainfall in every month of the year. And those are critical areas for a whole lot of threatened species, including tigers, elephants, hornbills, primates, and a lot more. 
Um, sorry, I keep hitting the wrong key accent here. Oil palm is an incredibly uh, uh, efficient fruit. It produces up to 10 times more oil per unit area than any other uh, vegetable-based oil. It only grows in the humid tropics, and its oil is used in a huge array of products that all of us are using every day, from cooking oil and other foods through to chocolate and stuff like that, chocolate cookies, to personal care products, soaps, shampoos, to biofuels. And it's a vital source of income and employment at local and national scales. 80% of production today comes from Indonesia and Malaysia, where it's critical to local and national economies. And the potential profits are huge and hard to resist, and I'll come on to that a bit more in a minute. And it's, it's a native forest tree in West Africa, but in Southeast Asia, it's grown in these uh, monoculture plantations, which wipe out all natural forest and natural biodiversity pretty much. The reason I say I'm fairly familiar with this one is this is where I lived for 20 years in Sarawak, the Malaysian part of Northern Borneo. Uh, which has, it's a, it's a fabulous place, it's got very high cultural diversity, it's also got amongst the highest species diversity in the world, including the Bornean orangutan and many other endemic species. The orangutan is in Borneo and in Sumatra, that's the only place it occurs, and more than 60% of its uh, range has been cleared in the last 50 years, mostly for oil palm, and that's been accompanied in lots of cases by, by really devastating fires. We heard last year all about the devastating fires in Brazil. Indonesia was also burning at the same time. It just got less publicity. In addition to the habitat loss, which is clearly appalling, orangutans are also hunted for food, as for trophies, and as pets. They breed more slowly than any other mammal in the world. Uh, they have one offspring about every six to eight years, and they live at extremely low density, so almost any hunting is unsustainable. So orangutans are in really bad shape. Uh, so this is numbers, uh, Borneans are down by 50% in the last 60 years. Sumatrans are in even worse shape with only about 6,500 left, down by more than 80% in the last 75 years or so. So in terms of traditional approaches, these have been pretty effective in some areas. There's been some very good protected areas established. Uh, the large Ganong Loiza Reserve in northern Sumatra on the west, uh, the big red reserve complex in the middle of Borneo in the middle. Um, and those are protecting the orangutans within those areas very well. And anti-wildlife trafficking programs are also being pretty effective in curtailing the trade but it's very hard to address the economic pressures to clear more forests for oil palm. So what if synthetic biology could be used to produce vegetable oils in a way that doesn't involve cutting down more forest? At least one company has shown that this can be done using algae and another is exploring doing it using yeast, which sounds like potentially great news for orangutans, but it's not quite as clear cut as that. It does raise many other questions. What would the impact on lands required for growing sugars? You can't just conjure these, these oils out of thin air. They need to have sugars to feed the algae or the yeast to produce the, the oils. Um, but would the land for growing those sugars be less detrimental than converting further land for oil palm? If it's done in, in more degraded land or something like that. What would the impact be on the economies and employment for Malaysia and Indonesia, particularly for Indonesia? The economic impact could be huge if you're suddenly producing large quantities of cheap substitute oil in countries outside there. 
or could production be within those countries? And if so, what might environmentally friendly options for sugar production be? For example, the oil palm husks, once the oil has been squeezed out, could they be used somehow to uh, grow the sugar to feed the algae and the yeast? So this sounds great um, in some ways, but these things are complex. These, these um, disruptive technologies tend to be complex and they need a lot of thought and a lot of further research. So these are just a few tiny glimpses of the potential interactions between wildlife conservation and synthetic biology. More of them are in that report. I'm sure you're familiar with more of them as well. And recognizing that the field of synthetic biology is developing at an absolutely extraordinary rate. The conservation community is largely unaware of synthetic biology and, and if they are aware of it, they're pretty uninformed about it on the whole. Uh, but it's in our world, the implications, both positive and negative, are absolutely huge. And we really need to be well informed and we need to be discussing and doing research on this. Thank you very much indeed again for inviting me along. And if any of you have any questions, please. So um, thank you again, Liz. Um, you should be able to see everyone in the room. So, um, you actually can probably field your own question. Yeah. Um, okay. I noticed with your, uh, there was a slide that you showed with orangutans. And I was just wondering how many different species are there in <laughs> Indonesia? You did give us two and some idea about what the various impacts have been on their populations. Could you share a little bit more about that? Yes, sure. Until last year, the answer to that question would have been two. Uh, Sumatran orangutans, which only occur in North Sumatra, and Borneo orangutans, which historically occurred throughout Borneo, although there's now quite a few gaps in that range. But last year, there was a description of a third species called the Tapanuli orangutan in central Sumatra, which has clearly been separated for a very long time from the other Sumatran uh, orangutans. And so the genetic evidence seems strong enough to make the case that that is, that is potentially a third species called the Tapanuli orangutan. And there's only about 800 of those left in one area, which is being threatened by a dam. Um, so that one's really a concern. Thank you. Um, hey Liz, this is Zach Brown with the GES Center. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, I had a question about the first example horseshoe crab one that's kind of seemingly clear cut in terms of the advantages of having that synthetic biology reagent. Um, I'm an environmental economist, so actually the first thing I thought of was that horseshoe crab is seemingly only economic value in the, in the current circumstances, but is because it can be bled for this for this purpose. And I've heard some reports that, um, that you know, the fish, first of all, it creates some fishing jobs and, it, um, and the fishermen uh, have to, you know, follow pretty significant protocols, both extracting those crabs and then returning them to the wild. And you're right, I don't know what the survival rates are, but I could easily see a scenario where if the, reage, the synthetic biology option replaced the utility of the crabs, then they essentially have no economic value and they might actually be less conserved under, in some cases. Um, so that That's a good up? point. I mean, one, one would hope that they would just be protected, um, you know, they would just be left alone. But you're right, they might not be. Um, and they are fish to some extent anyway. Um, I'm not sure why. They can't be terribly tasty. I think they used to bait. I think that's the only reason they fish for them is just for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, no, that's a good question. I, I don't know the answer to that. 
Um, I mean, one would hope that as sort of a very ancient, uh, distinct genetic line that people would still care for them anyway, but you're right, they may not. Yeah, hi. Uh, on the uh, adaptation idea in the American chestnut, um, you went over some of the pragmatic points. Um, I wonder if you also uh, have some thoughts about the, the values idea of saving a species by making it transgenic. That's a good question. I mean, it's one of the it's one of the concerns that people have with the synthetic biology approach altogether. I mean, it's a, it's a single gene from wheat. It's not hugely different, um, but um, that's that's a, that's one of the questions up for debate. Is is what is a what is a species and what should species conservation do? I mean, to some extent, we've altered species through time through domestication anyway. And some of the concerns are things well, we've always altered species in our own way. But for a truly wild species like that, making it transgenic, it's, it's, it's a very good question. I don't know, Todd, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I'm, I'm curious, sort of in, in you know, the history of WCS as well, to kind of build on this question of, you know, were these same types of conversations being had around, say, creating wildlife reserves, where you're also sort of limiting, right, the, the, the range of those particular particular species or animals, obviously in, for the purpose of conserving them. But this, I think this is a larger question, right, that we grappled with in that IUCN report too, and that I think the conservation community as a whole is <clears throat> grappling with, which is, you know, it's this question of naturalness in a, in a way, right, of like, you know, we're clearly managing species now, right? There are very few, if any, natural habitats left that are untouched by by humankind. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about maybe some of that historical context of, of these managed systems in order to protect those species and, and how that might be relating to this question that Eli was asking about these genetic management um, you know, interventions. Yes, I mean, the idea of, I mean, historically, the idea of reserves is to make them large enough that you're not constraining the species. The species will leave them. Most of them, I mean, apart from some in Southern Africa, most wildlife reserves are and national parks, they're pretty large and they are designed to encompass the whole range of the, of the population. And if it doesn't, then they're designed somehow to be able to be connected up to other ones so that the species can range outside it. So the larger the areas you get, and increasingly we are getting pretty large protected area systems now, uh, around the world. So they are meant to protect uh, as much as possible intact systems um, in a way that are ecologically independent and functionally ecologically. So it's not quite the same question from that point of view. Um, and we try and do our best to say this is as natural as we can, recognizing what does that mean in today's world. Um, other things where we do have more actively interfere in a sense is for species where you're doing captive breeding of them and then reintroducing them, which is much more hands-on. It still should be genetically the same, the same animal and the same species. Um, and there's quite a lot of approaches to try and restore genetic purity to species. And the one that we're working on around that, uh, for example, is the North American bison. Because North American bison, most North American bison have got some cow genes in them. 
Um, here at the Bronx Zoo, where I am now, we have a herd of genetically pure bison, uh, which have had all the cow genes bred out of them. Um, and so the, there is demand, oh, there's request actually from some of the, um, um, the Native American communities to have some genetically pure bison from the Bronx Zoo to reintroduce onto their lands because they want genetically pure ones. So I don't think that exactly answers the question, but there is the, the question of trying to make things as genetically pure as possible and as uh, natural as possible, however you can define that, is clearly what the conservation community traditionally and still today is largely trying to do, which does get back at the question of what does that mean for the, uh, for the uh, American chestnut, which I'm not answering, but I don't know the answer. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it's your own personal philosophy as well, a lot of this. Yes, I heard at the back. You talked a lot about um, preserving genetic purity and um, that. Is there a role for synthetic biology to mitigate um, or preserve genetic diversity in these species that have had these really large bottlenecks? Uh, potentially, yes. One of the examples that's in the in the IUCN report is the black-footed ferret, uh, which has gone through a huge genetic bottleneck. And there is a lot of more diverse uh, black-footed ferret DNA in natural history museums, in uh, zoos, and there is certainly the potential uh, uh, which is being explored to increase the genetic diversity of the black-footed ferret for exactly that reason. And that one would be possible. You bring up this idea about jobs lost, and um, I think that's a really tough one because if jobs lost this year or next year or in the future, and I, I haven't kept up with it, but one issue I'm concerned about is that tsetse fly in Africa, uh, where mm -hmm. tsetse fly you know causes sleeping sickness, but it's worse for cattle, right? And uh, therefore, farmers don't have the ability to farm a lot in a lot of areas. And those are areas of incredibly high biodiversity. So you could say that you want to get rid of the tsetse fly so that you make African uh, lives easier. Um, but there's that question of whether that would then lead to elimination of a lot of the uh, high biodiversity areas in a, in a major way. But then it's that question of, is that going to improve life? Is it going to be less poverty? Or in the end, could there be more poverty because of the political situation? You know, because, you know how, how that would turn into almost slavery or something. You know, it just depends on the politics. So I just wonder if, if that's been considered. I, I don't know how you do that, but um, when you put some value on lost jobs, it seems like a difficult thing. It is, it is a difficult one. It's a very tough one. I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm no more familiar with the, the Tsetse fly example than, than what you said. I mean, one of the ones that synthetic biology is exploring is, um, is eliminating malaria. Um, and that, again, that sounds great. It would clearly be great for Africa if it didn't have malaria. But then it already has an incredibly high rate of population, human population increase, even with malaria. So a lot of these things, and clearly, Nobody would say we want to keep malaria, um, but the, the the sort of these things all have consequences beyond the immediate short term, short term issue that's being addressed. Um, and 
I mean, over time, if, if jobs were lost in one sector in, in Indonesia, then presumably another sector would come up. But it's such an important part of the economy, and it gives jobs in rural areas where there's not a lot of other employment. So certainly it would cause a lot of civil unrest, apart from anything else, almost certainly, if, if, um, if the industry was to be substituted by something cheaper elsewhere. Thank you. It's a tough one. Uh, okay. Um, do you think it's important to prioritize the conservation of species which have significant ecological or economic value over species which some people just believe have intrinsic value? I mean, ideally what we should be doing is, I mean, the answer to the question is, is no. Um, I, I don't, personally. Um, and I think one of the reasons is because species don't operate individually. They operate as parts of systems with all other species. And it's having these really intact, fully ecologically functioning systems that make the planet work. And um, so if you lose, um, you lose components of that, who knows what the ramifications are going to be. We know what the ramifications tend to be if you lose top predators, for example, and the re reintroduction of the wolf into Yellowstone and showing the total ecological change of the entire system, right down to meandering rivers and beavers coming back, um, shows that the why it's so important to keep top predators in. But if you lose other species that are component parts of that as well, the ramifications are going to be, you lose one, you'll lose more than one. So really what we should be striving to do is keep these intact systems. We often use species to do that, partly because it makes a good funding argument. We need to fund these places and people will pay. I mean, we have donors who will give us large chunks of money to save tigers. They won't give us large chunks of money to save the fungi in that same forest. Um, even though ecologically in a rainforest, the most important species in a rainforest probably ecologically is a termite because they keep the whole thing running. No one's going to give you a million dollar check to save a termite. They will to save a tiger. So it's partly they act as sort of flagships to raise political attention and funding for the system as a whole, and partly because they tend to have a, a greater, uh, at least keystone species, a greater ecological effect. But basically, no, we need to be protecting the system. Thank you. <laughs> All in the corner. Uh, hi, Dr. Bennett. Uh, great talk. Thank you so much. Um, sort of feeding off of uh, comments that have uh, happened so far here in the q and I'm wondering just sort of generally, as synthetic biology continues to develop and these conversations about it um, expand within the conservation community, I'm interested, um, do you think that synthetic biology will serve to align more the interests of conservation with the interests of commercial entities? And is that, whichever way, is that a good thing? Can you explain a little bit more what you mean by commercial entities? What do you So, I mean, I'm thinking of the, um, I'm thinking of the uh, horseshoe crab example where there's definitely commercial interests in the synthetic biology solution to this conservation problem. Um, as this emerging technology develops and new potential solutions are imagined, do you think that's going to kind of be a trend for how this technology gets applied in the conservation realm? 
I suspect it would be somewhat on a case-by-case -case basis. So yes, the horseshoe crabs, potentially the, the uh, vegetable oils, I mean, they clearly have enormous economic potential. Um, but other things like the invasive species on islands, that's not really an economic thing. It's that's that's a pure conservation solving a pure conservation problem rather than an economic problem. So it probably varies case by case to quite some extent. Um, the the applications that are very species focused, just trying to think this through a little bit, probably less so. Um, the ones, for example, there's discussion. It's a long way from even vaguely potentially being feasible or realised would be um, using a synthetic biology uh, solution to combat chytrid fungus in amphibians, which is wiping out so many amphibians. That could be hugely important for conservation, but it's not obvious that it didn't have a real major economic value. But some of these um, non-conservation applications certainly, certainly would do, um, and they have ramifications for conservation. So that might be a way, I hadn't thought about it before, but that might be a way to think of it as, the direct conservation ones probably less so, the indirect ones probably more so. Again, it'd be interesting to see what Todd thinks of that. Hi, Liz. This is Adam Kokodovich. We wrote. Yeah, I was seeing I was seeing, I think I know that guy. That's <laughs> right. You've never seen him in Brazil at a writing workshop. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. Synthetic biology meetings take place in tough places, just let That's you know. Right. We stopped in Bellagio in Italy by Lake Como, and then we went to a fabulous rainforest area in Brazil. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering, as you've, you've talked with your fellow conservationists about your work in this realm and on this project, I was curious whether you see them, you know, the report takes a very case-by-case -case approach to it, right? Consider one case at a time, separate from the characteristics of the other cases. Do you see your fellow conservationists uh, willing to do a case-by-case -case assessment of these synthetic biology products, or do you see a desire to kind of categorically question or accept or dismiss or accept them? And I'm, that's the first question. And I guess the follow-up question to that would be, are there issues at the kind of categorical or systemic level that need to be addressed across all of them so that the conservation benefit can be See. In terms of the colleagues that I've discussed it with and, and chatted about the report to, and um, they tend to be intrigued. It tends to be something that's that's really new to them, um, and to an extent which perhaps is surprising, particularly to you guys, um, is the conservation community is really still amazingly just not on their radars. And then when I describe it and, and give versions of this talk to people, they tend to end up. Uh, certainly amongst my sort of professional conservation colleagues being very intrigued and being interested in case-by-case -case studies. So, for example, the Jason Islands with the breeding albatrosses on, they are actually owned and managed by WCS. Um, and the person, he's an Argentinian, a uh, wonderful friend and colleague uh, who oversees management of the islands, um, he, when I chatted to him about this, he was absolutely intrigued because he doesn't know how to deal with his invasive mice. Um, he would he would love to try it. Now, whether we'd get that through our board, whether we'd get, I mean, there's a whole load of hazards there, but certainly amongst the colleagues working on the ground, um, they are, they're really intrigued and they'd like to, they want to learn more. Which is, which is good. And I don't think it's a blanket 
yes or no for either, but they're just, they're intrigued that there's a tool out there potentially, which they weren't aware of, that potentially might be helpful. So I had a follow-up question on that, I think, because one of the things I would assume in your position with MCS is, you know, you're um, donors to, the, to your organization, and so what do the donors feel about, I mean, do you have any sense about, you know, if you were to deploy rodents on islands, how that would affect, um, if you, you know, in some of the, the protected areas that WCS has, is there any sense in the organization about how donors to WCS might view that type of activity? It's not been discussed, uh, as far as I'm aware, very much, uh, if at all. I can imagine, and again, using that Jason Islands example, uh, we have one, one individual donor. It, it's, a, it's an incredibly cheap area to manage because it's uninhabited. There's no direct threats there, uh, apart from those mice, um, and it's in the middle of absolutely nowhere. So it's, it's an inexpensive place to manage. Um, but we have one donor that pays for all the management costs, and I've been down there with her. And I imagine that if we went to her and said, hey, let's try this to get rid of these mice, she would, she'd probably leap at it because she's been thinking, what, what can we do about these mice? So I can imagine in that particular case that, uh, um, that she would be intrigued and maybe give us more money. Um, but I couldn't speak more generally than that because it's really not reached the point of, of getting to donors yet. Um, the, one of the things that there are various um, uh, agencies every now and again put out a competition for uh, conservation project funding for things that are using technology to solve a conservation problem. And so far, no one's proposed a conservation biology one yet. They tend to be IT type solutions or drone, novel use of drones or something like that. But um, USAID put out a call a couple of years ago for sort of innovative technological solutions to conservation problems. Um, and a couple of other organizations have as well. So it's possible that, that that could fit into that category going down the line. Hi, Liz. Thank you. Roy Dinsaw. Um, so you spoke about needing to preserve uh, areas, so you're not focused on one species, you're, you're focusing on the system. And I would like, if you could, to comment on the IPBES report around the, the near-term loss of up to 12 you know, million species, 12% of, of life on Earth, and how um, the call for the use of of technologies writ large, so not just the genetic technologies, but all technologies. Could you comment on um, genetic technologies versus the rest of them and your, your thoughts and experience around some of that? I'm not sure quite how much. Um, I'm not sure is the answer to the question. I mean, broadly, we're going to need to change an awful lot of things if many of those species are not going to go extinct. Adre technologies to address climate change is clearly, we've got to change the way we do business altogether if, if climate change isn't going to wipe out a huge number of things. Um, so basically, we're going to need to bring lots of tools to bear. Uh, genetic ones are probably a fairly small proportion of that, would be my guess, but then maybe that's just because I'm not seeing the big genetic picture that's clearly out there. Um, 
So, yeah, and we need to change the technology to which we use transport, where we heat our homes, but all of this has got to change if we're going to actually save a lot of those species. So it's a, it's a really big problem. And I'm pleased to see you in the room. I thought you were going to be online. <laughs> Let's give Liz another round of applause. again, Liz, um, for doing this. Um, we really appreciate it. Um, and as a personal note, I'll, I'll looking forward to seeing you next Wednesday. So. Yes, indeed. Yes, thank <laughs> you for coming up. It's been great. Right, thanks. Thanks. See, you. See you. Bye-bye. Thank you very bye -bye. much.